Hi, my name is Sam. I'm Shelly. And you're listening to the Ripple Effect ABA. And so today, we're just going to give you a little bit of history on the name. So, um, I am a behavior analysis, and so is Shelby. And I was like, how can I disseminate information? Um, And I went on her podcast because I listened to a lot of them. um, And I really wanted to be, you know, doing something like that. So I was like, what is a name I can think of? And I went through all types of kids name or anything. And then I sat down and I was like, kind of, well, what is the purpose? What is the purpose of me doing this podcast? And I was like, well, I want to make a change and I want to um, inform people. And the first thing that came in my head, honestly, reminding me about a sermon I've heard about in church (laughs) and it was talking about the ripple effect. And so, you know, the ripple effect that we can make by making change. So all it takes is us to engage in one action to affect many other people. So it's like throwing a pebble in the water. Once you throw that pebble, now it's going to ripple across the whole water and, you know, make a wave to hit other people and objects. I love that. So I landed on the ripple effect ABA. My name is um, Samia Reed, aka Sam, and I am a uh, BCBA in the state of Texas. I'm also licensed in the state of Texas and uh, in Louisiana. Interesting. So that's fun. I have (laughs) I have a bachelor's in healthcare administration with a minor's in human resources and nursing. and I have a master's in psychology with uh, a specialization in applied behavioral analysis. And I started off in the field as an RBT. Yes, moved you did. Up to a lead RBT. And here I am as a BCBA, um, just trying to disseminate information and take the world by storm. And here I have the best mentor and who got me into what I'm doing today. I'm going to say it loud and proud for everyone here. She's why I'm here. It's a wonderful and great. My name is Shelby, <laughs> y'all. <laughs> uh, I am also a BCBA in the state of Tejas. Um, my kind of story is, did I major in minor? Uh, my bachelor's is in psych and my minor is in educational psychology. Uh, my master's is in marriage and family counseling with a specialization in applied behavior analysis as well. Um, I've kind of done all of the positions, I would say, in ABA. I started out as an RBT for a few years. Uh, I was a BCBA. Um, I've started a branch for a company. I've been clinical director. Um, and yeah, I just kind of am obsessed with it. It's been like such a great uh, field to be in and um, we just get to like make change in families' lives and kiddos' lives. And it's just the most addicting and best job I could have ever imagined having. So. Shelby. <laughs> and this is our first podcast. <laughs> if you couldn't tell. This is the Ripple Effect ABA. 
And today we're going to be going over the first section one, two, and three in measurement on the RBT um, competency assessment. Yes. All right. So section number one, continuous measurement, um, goes over the implementation of continuous measurement and those different domains that fall within, which follow as frequency, <laughs> duration, latency, and IRT. Um, so with continuous measurement, I think the important part that I always stress with RBTs is what the difference is between continuous measurement and discontinuous measurement. Um, and so with continuous measurement, the thing to think about is the fact that you are taking data on that entire behavior or every instance of that behavior. With discontinuous measurement, you're only taking a sample of that behavior by looking at a small time frame of that behavior or um, just looking at moments like momentary time sampling when you're just checking if that behavior is happening. Mm -hmm. um, and so with the different types of continuous measurement, of course, there's frequency. So we have every instance that counts up the behavior. Duration, the entire duration or how long the behavior lasts. Latency is the time between whenever you give the directive to the time the child responds. And then IRT is the time in between behavioral responses. Solid. So my brain thinks a little different. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, I'm like one of those people who have like a struggle bus when it comes to the um, terminology. Uh, for ABA and so when I think continuous first thing I think is something that's like continual it's continuously happening and that's what I think with like somebody's crying it's like they won't stop crying and so I flip it I'm like continuous actually doesn't continue so it's like if I'm counting throwing that's one instance of throwing you know with frequency I don't know that's how my brain works <laughs> hopefully I didn't confuse anybody with that statement but Essentially frequency, so if we're going to give an example, um, this is a behavior where we could be calculating, um, yeah, how often a kiddo is throwing items. And so each time that they throw items in a session, so it could be 20 different times they threw something, and that's a behavior where we would use frequency or count. Then we have duration. It can be how long, you know, that behavior is occurring from beginning to end. So it can be like a tantrum. So if a kiddo is engaging in more than one maldactive behavior for five minutes, let's say we have an onset of 30 seconds, we'll start the timer and then they, you know, have a tantrum for five minutes, 30 seconds later, they're no longer tantruming, stop the timer. That's going to be a full duration of that meltdown. Um, and then let's say for latency, um, it's going to be, you know, it's the time, I always call it the time between the A and the B. <laughs> and so let's say, you know, it's like when your mom calls you and your mom's like, hey, come here. And I'm like, nah, I'm not gonna do that. And so I sit a while um, and then at some point I decide to go respond to what my mom is saying. And so the time in between when my mom called me and when I decided to respond is going to be that latency which I think is oftenly confused with inner response time. Mm -hmm. um, and inner response time is going, I always say it's the time between two Bs. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I have a lot of weird things to help me remember. And so it's the time in between two consecutive behaviors. So like, let's say um, somebody is, I don't know, jumping. Yeah, I don't know why I thought of that one. But let's say someone's jumping. So if they jump up 
and down, and then they're supposed to do another jump. Um, and a response time is going to be the time between the first jump and the second jump. Beautiful. Yeah. And I think with continuous measurement too, making sure that as an RBT, your PCBA is clearly defining like what that instance should look like and what the beginning and end of that instance is. Um, because if you're collecting frequencies on whining, you need to know what whining actually looks like so you can actually count that instance with fidelity. That is a great point. Always double check. If you have to guess or you're questioning, it's better to ask than not to do anything about it. I will tell you, um, Shelby was my mentor <laughs> and I asked her so many questions that I thought her head was going to explode. So <laughs> we love the questions. You know, it works out. And now here we are on a podcast. So and Sam's probably heard me say this a thousand times, but <laughs> if you are 95% sure about something, just ask so you can be a hundred percent sure. It's always better to ask your supervisor 10 times the same question so that you make sure you understand it rather than just saying, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to ask again. I don't want to annoy them and no, annoy, annoy them. Yeah. Just do it. Yeah. And I mean, they're awesome. Most of the times these BAs will respond and make you feel confident about asking the question and show you the right way. Um, that's at least what my BCBA did. Anywho. <laughs> that's not what my BCBA <laughs> Oh, geez Louise. Okay. Uh, so the second thing in the measurement column on the comp assessment is discontinuous measurement, which if you want to define that. Yeah. So with discontinuous measurement, I always just think you're just taking a sample of that behavior. Um, and whenever I'm talking to RBTs, I'm also just going over the fact that like, when would it be appropriate to use those two different measurement styles with discontinuous measurement? Um, like I always think of teachers, right? Teachers don't have time in a classroom with 20 kids to take continuous data. There's no way that with the lesson and managing 19 other kiddos that they're going to be able to collect every instance of a behavior. So looking at instances like uh, being in a classroom, you're only going to take a sample of that behavior. So the different kinds are partial interval, whole interval, momentary time sampling. So momentary time sampling will be great for teachers because then maybe at the end of a five minute interval, they're just checking to see if that behavior is occurring or not occurring with momentary time sampling. With partial and whole interval, you're just seeing if that behavior lasted over, um, for partial interval, you're just seeing if you have 10 minutes that you're calculating data. So let's say you have a 10 minute sample of that child's behavior. In the first minute, you're just seeing did that behavior occur at all? So if it occurred in the first one to two seconds, you can stop collecting data because you already have a data point for that interval. Um, with whole interval, you're looking at did the behavior last over the entire interval? So if you have a 10 minute sample of time and you're breaking that down into one minute increments of time that you're taking data on, did the behavior last from second one to second 60? If it stopped at second 58, and you're like, well, it covered most of the interval. No, you're still not going to collect data for that um, section because it didn't last over the entire interval. Um, also good to know is partial interval is looking at decreasing behaviors um, and whole interval is used to look at if the behavior is increasing. Mm -hmm. One important thing that you're going to want to know for this section as well when it comes to um, you know testing is figuring out which is overestimating which one is underestimating. Now take this as you will. How I remember this is, is <laughs> please enlighten me. For whole interval I do never underestimate a hoe. So I drop okay. the W and keep the H-O. Okay. So, <laughs> you never, 
okay, like this is going. So you never underestimate, you know? Uh-huh. And then for partial, I drop the A and replace it with an O. And so the popo is always overestimating situations, okay, you know? Okay, okay. And so that's how I remember the two is that police overestimate, you know, the situation, partial, and never underestimate a hoe. So <laughs> that's whole interval. And you got that here on the ripple effect. <laughs> that is the jazz. And so section number three. Well, and also, just going back, oh. discontinuous measurement too, if if it's taking you a while to get this, it probably took me a solid like year and a half to fully feel like I was able to on the spot explain these two because mm-hmm. they just did not make sense in my mind. So like all of these things um, that we're going over in the competency assessment, especially discontinuous measurement and a few other concepts, don't feel bad if you aren't able to get it right away. Like you're gonna take some time to really fully understand these concepts. Yeah, model, model, practice, practice. And you know, anytime your BCBA says you wanna try it out, jump in so you can get that feedback and um, really understand what is what you're talking about. Um, Section three in measurement, I think is going to be like the most important, which I hold dear to my heart, is going to be data and graphing. we got to have the data like we need to know what is happening and we need to make sure that it's accurate we need to make sure it's there at all times um and if you're ever questioning hey should i track this this is not there like write it down always communicate with your bcba because every single thing actually does matter and when it's not accurate it does impact treatment and so making sure whatever type of system you're using whether whether it's catalyst you know, central reach, bib track, that you understand how to use it, how to enter that data, and know that you understand your descriptions to be able to make sure that you're putting it in accurately. And if you're seeing new behaviors arising and your BCBA isn't there for a supervision, like paper data is great. So even if you have those online um, data collection systems, like always have a piece of paper or a notebook or something like that in session so you can also take um, like supplemental data mm-hmm. if you need to. Um, and with graphing, I grew up in like paper data. Um, and I think that, so I'm like pretty comfortable with graphing. You have to graph at the end of every session on just like paper, but, um, always just making sure that, you know, whenever you are graphing, even if you have an online data collection system that does it for you, like what the X axis is, what the Y axis is, what we're labeling things. Um, because we have, if we have a, a graph with no label, then we don't know what it's for. And with data collection, also just remembering, like, if you don't take the data, it does not happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, you can tell me all day, well, he had six mans, but I didn't put that data in. Well, then he didn't have six mans, right? We only have what our data shows us. And the quicker that you put it in after the behavior occurs, the stronger that data is going to be. We want to make sure that we're putting it in within that same day and we're not kind of waiting so we're losing things. Um, and so always just keep that conversation open with your BCBA. Um, you know, if it's hard to take data or you don't know what type of graph you're looking at or what's the point of having a graph. Because I know when I first started, I was like, it's there, but I have no idea what this means. But then when my BCA was like, this is what this means. I mean, it encouraged me to really pay attention to the data I was collecting um, and push myself and the kiddo, you know, further during session. And so whenever I'm looking at graphs, an easy way to remember between the X and the Y axis is the Y axis. So Y, Mm -hmm. this is the way my brain works a y only has one leg to stand on 
So you're only, you're going to have the straight up and down line. You only have a, one leg to stand on. And then the X has two legs to stand on. So then you have each point at the bottom of the X going across horizontally. I have never thought of that in my life. That has been such a hard thing. And you just <laughs> changed <laughs> You could have been my math teacher, and I would have passed a lot of classes. This is, well, there you have it. This is, <laughs> this is a review of the measurement system, well, the measurement section, task one through three, not system, um, from the RBT competency, that word, assessment. <laughs> hey, bye. <laughs>
session. Um, and so you might use DTT more often than that um, while you're kind of getting your feet wet in ABA, I would say. Yeah, I think what Sam's saying is that, <laughs> <laughs> that DTT is going to be a lot easier for you to implement. After that was a word. Because it's not as, um, you're not improvising as much. With DTT, you, like she said, you have that structure already laid out or you know what um, to expect from that teaching trial. And with NET, you have to improvise a lot more. So as a newer RBT, DTT is going to feel a lot more comfortable for most RBTs a little bit quicker than NET. That was perfect. That's exactly what I was trying to convey. <laughs> I just did not have the words. You know, like my passion overtook me. I'm like, you know, I wish there was like a role play where we could just, you know, the old oh. days where I was like banging out the DT guys. It was. She's a killer. It's a killer in session, by the way, guys. So if you ever need some suggestions for how to implement DTT or net, Sam is your lady. I'm all about it, you know, OTRs, it's a thing. We'll talk about that at a later date. <laughs> but, I mean, I guess that's pretty much the synopsis of that one. It's going to be teacher-led. Um, it's something that the kid knows that they're being taught. You'll find people doing it at the table. Um, but it is also possible to do it in other areas of the house as well. And I think the last thing about DTT is also your, just as a, like a tip for the RBT is you should not have an entire session that is ran with DTT. Correct. So please avoid that. <laughs> I was, I was going to say, you should have an entire session just ran full of just like, you know, craziness. Yeah. There's a lot of learning opportunities, but a lot of variation. Is yes. Variation is great. Um, and then you have naturalistic teaching, which is going to be another teaching procedure. Um, and it's kind of what it sounds like. It's natural. You know, it's unstructured. It's finding different opportunities or the kiddo to learn. Um, you can do, you know, different incidental teaching styles. You can, you know, talk about everything you're kind of walking through. If you know that you guys are going over like bugs, go outside, you know, find different opportunities to really just, you know, see what the kid knows. Um, and it's a fun thing to do when you're like playing and you're having that time where, you know, your kiddo's in a break and you're sitting down playing with them. Those are other opportunities where we can be running targets. And the kiddo just has no idea that it's kind of happening. They're just like, this is fun. You're engaging with me and they're learning through the process. And so, um, yeah, that's like a, I know, yeah, when you're about <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, with that, it's all student-led. Right, so we want to follow the child around, and, and this is where it comes in from. You know, a brand new RBT is going to probably have a little bit more difficult time with net because you have to be experienced enough to also know what opportunities are presenting mm -hmm. itself. So it also requires you to be a little bit more comfortable with what data you're taking on your data. I mean, your for your session data. Um, but net could be also, you know, we're playing trains and I have all of the trains next to me and the child's asking me for different, different trains and um, I'm giving them different SDs like, oh my gosh, I love that train. What color is that train? So we're still learning colors, but that child's just thinking that we're just playing trains, mm -hmm. right? So it's not um, as structured, but it also will take a little bit more time for the RBT to get comfortable with implementing that. So just talk to your BCBA about what that looks like and ask them directly, like what opportunities did you see that I missed in our free time that I could have implemented in that procedure in? Um, Cause I think that's probably gonna give you the most um, 
feedback in that way of what opportunities you could um, use it for next time that you're in session. Mm -hmm. I think it also gives you a key in to kind of uh, what the kiddo is interested in in that moment and you know really reinforces them. I find like a lot of kids where it's like cool we were going over ocean animals but you really want to know about spiders. Not my thing but okay let's just get naturalistic and really get into what they're talking about and find different opportunities and those are some things that you can always relay back to your bcbas is like hey they're really into this right now do we want to throw something in um and always leaving your bcba if you're having trouble with net like shelby said it's a harder one to implement but yeah. they're definitely there to walk you through that process um and then once you got it you got it and i think to um something to kind of think about both DTT and net is DTT might be used more for newer behaviors that you're trying to acquire or new skills that you're trying to teach the child because it is more structured. Naturalistic, then you can take what you spent time in DTT working on and then you can generalize it in the net. Um, so it's not as structured of a learning environment to see how they're generalizing those skills as well. Um, of course, you can teach new skills with net, but sometimes depending on the kiddo, we might need to start with DTT and then naturalize to net, um, I mean, uh, generalize to net. So just depending on your learner, um, talk to your BCBI about what would be better to implement in each session. Solid. All right, so number eight. Change. <laughs> the wonderful thing of training. So there's different types of training um, that you'll find. Um, you have forward training, backward training, and total task training. Um, there's going to be the different types of procedures that you can use to kind of um, help you and the kiddo out during session. Um, pretty much. Uh <laughs> yeah, and so with training too, we have to kind of take a step back as well and think, what does chaining mean and what are we chaining? So chaining, you are taking one longer behavior, let's say hand washing, mm -hmm. and then you're gonna break that chain down into, uh, or you're gonna break that one behavior down into different small sections, um, and that's called a task analysis. So a task analysis would be walking into the bathroom, turning on the faucet, putting my hands under the soap dispenser, putting my hands under the sink. So you're breaking that bigger task down into smaller areas and then chaining comes in because you're taking that task analysis that your BCBA or you've helped uh, create and then you are doing one of those singular behaviors at a time to basically make that larger chain. Yeah. And so I think a cool thing that I think about with chaining, um, I think of behaviors and kind of what would be best to use for kiddos. Um, that's why I kind of think about forward and backward training is like, do you have a kiddo who's super hyperactive and is like, I got to get there, I got to get there, I got to get there, but we're wanting to teach a skill. And I'm like, perfect, backward chaining. You know, I'm going to start all of these steps for you and then I'm going to have you complete the last one. You've got reinforcement. Great job, bud. And so that's exactly what backward chaining is, is that you start, they finish. Um, and so that'll be good for kids, like I said, that are, you know, they want to see that reinforcement quickly. But we're slowly teaching them that skill. So let's say that they are learning to button their shirt, right? I'm going to button it from the top all the way to the last one or mom will button it from the top all the way to the last one. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then we'll let them button the last one. You have your shirt on, cool. Now you can go, I don't know, watch Teletubbies. Um, but after they've mastered buttoning that last button, next time I'm going to start at the top and then I'm going to leave two 
and then after they master two we're going to go all the way up until they're doing that task completely independently but um it just gets them to that reinforcement a little bit quicker yeah um i probably use backwards chaining more than forward chaining um the forward chaining is basically going to be exactly what sam said but just in the opposite so um they are going to start the first button and then sam is going to finish the rest of them and then you'll just teach it um basically in the opposite way mm -hmm. i've had so like with forward chaining uh, one that i've like seen is like tying shoes it's like i know how to do all the other steps but like i have trouble just pulling the laces and so for some kids it's like okay well i'm gonna just do this you know step and then you can complete the rest because that's all that they need and so it may be those things where it's like i this is a really difficult zipper i know how to put everything away in my backpack but i can't get the zipper open or i'm still learning how to develop the skills to get the zipper open okay well i'm going to start with opening this and then you know we'll go with you completing the rest of those tasks and then we can shape that other skill um and so those are different things to kind of think about but i, I agree alice use backward chaining a little bit more yeah and total task training is really great too because total task training is Basically, you're going to use this if the child has some of the steps, but not all of the steps of the task analysis. So you're just going to help prompt them through those other steps. Um, so let's say that we have a behavior such as buttoning your shirt, and we have broken that task analysis into eight different sections. Maybe the child has mastered three or four of those and so then we're going to use total task because we don't need to teach them every single step of the behavior like with forward or backwards chaining but with total task they already have some of those things mastered so then we're teaching the entire task at one time um breaking down each of those levels that was perfect i feel like that was just a very fluid description of chaining i loved it um i wish i had these videos when like i was doing this yeah because i'm like that sounds I was right. very confused about this. <laughs> I mean, I wasn't because I had Shelby, but <laughs> when I first read it by myself without asking questions, I was like, mm, this is something. <laughs> All right, so now on to number nine, which is shaping, which honestly, guys, I have the hardest time with defining shaping. How do you define shaping, Sam? <laughs> no. So <laughs> <laughs> the sweats are coming back <laughs> oh god i know i felt like we were in session so, again <laughs> i know i'm like immediately i'm like there's like, <laughs> like a rock in my throat i'm like <laughs> success of approximations yes! <laughs> reinforcing success of approximations yes. i've like built that like that word is like forever stuck in my head i was like i will learn this <laughs> so essentially when it comes to shaping we're reinforcing successive approximation. So it's taking one response or behavior and we're breaking that down into even smaller steps to help build a skill so they're able to make that response. So for instance, a lot of the times we use this when it comes to developing language. Um, and so let's say you'll I think everyone uses this example. You will, um, you're teaching a kiddo to say ball or man for, you know? Yeah. yeah. That's always my go-to. Yep. It's boy, boys and girls love balls. We, I mean, throw me a beach ball. I'm a happy girl. Yeah. Like it's a party. So let's say we're teaching a kiddo to man for ball. And we're just wanting to start with that word. 
it's one response, the word fall, but now we're gonna break that one response down to even smaller things. And so now we're gonna teach them kind of the phonetic um, vocalizations of that word. And so rather than requiring them to say ball, we're gonna start off with buh or just buh. And then after we've got that down, so when they do that, we're gonna reinforce that behavior, right? Boom, you've made it for it. And then once we got buh down, okay, well now I'm gonna change the requirement for reinforcement to buh. Okay, cool. And then for so on until they say buh, 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 ball. And then you've got shake ball. Perfect. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, but it's a fun thing to shape, honestly. Yeah, I think it, it definitely can be underutilized because we just teach one skill over and over and over and over. I'm like, why do we have variable data here? Um, but you can really do this with any behavior that you have. You can do it with finger movements, oral mm -hmm. motivation, um, gross motor imitation, fine motor imitation. So um, shaping is always, always a great procedure to utilize. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and then the last one we're gonna go over in the part one section of skill acquisition and behavior reduction is going to be um, task 10 for discrimination training. Um, which is another implementation that we use. And so a lot of the times you'll hear the uh, red ball, blue ball. That's the first thing that comes to my head because I feel like <laughs> that is how I, that is when I understood what was happening. And so honestly, it is what it sounds like. Discriminate. It's being capable to understand the difference between two objects. So do we know that this is a cup that holds water and that this is a strainer that does not hold water? Are we capable of discriminating between these two things? And so throughout all the things that we're doing when it comes to DTT net chaining and shaping, we're looking at the capability to be able to discriminate between stimuli. Um, and so that is essentially the process. Do you want to explain that more? in depth. <laughs> I mean, I think you did a good job. Oh. So yeah, I mean, it's just, if I put two red, I mean, if I put two tact cards in front of somebody and I have a red card and a green card and I say touch red, are they able to discriminate between those two items? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and so sometimes we have to teach that through discrimination training, um, which we could go a lot more into detail about that, but <laughs> at its most basic form, it is just understanding that we have to teach that two items are different from one another, or that a cat is a cat and a dog is a dog, so that everything has its label and we're able to discriminate between all those objects. Yep, and that is the beginning of everything. Okay, that was weird, but. All right, well. But she is right about that, because once you have discrimination training in there, then you can really move through a lot of other skill acquisition targets faster. This is true. And in that, that is the conclusion of skill acquisition and behavior reduction um, task section 6 through 15 for the RBT competency assessment. Oh man, it's a mouthful. Goodbye. <laughs>
Hi. <laughs> My name is Sam. <laughs> I am Shelby. And you are listening to the Ripple Effect ABA. And today we're going to be going over <laughs> skill acquisition and behavior reduction, uh, part two, that includes sections one through 15 for the RBT competency exam. Oh, salad. All right. So, oh, well, there we go. <laughs> um, the section that we'll be going over is stimulus control transfer, prompting token systems, crisis and emergency, demonstration of antecedent interventions, differential reinforcement, and extinction. So, number 11, stimulus control transfer. Now, you might be thinking, hey, I've done my 40 hours and I have not heard this word before. <laughs> Um, stimulus controlled transfer is essentially a procedure that we can use that after we begin to teach a skill, um, we slowly start to back off of the uh, type, the intensity of prompting we are using uh, until the kiddo can do it themselves completely. Also known as fading. <laughs> so when you hear those, when you hear stimulus control transfer, think to fading. Yeah, when I think of stimulus control transfer, all I'm really thinking, and kind of the easiest way to break it down, I think, is whenever you're first teaching a skill, you're going to probably, most likely, have to prompt that child to then gain an appropriate response. So stimulus control transfer is basically taking the power that that prompt has to get the right answer, right, or the accurate response, and it's giving the control to the SD. So then the SD will have the power to evoke the response that you are um, looking for instead of the prompting procedure. So that's kind of just like a like very watered down version of stimulus control transfer. Honestly, I thought it was super solid. Like oh, I, I was listening to it and I was like, awesome. That's nice. All right. <laughs> well, there it is. <laughs> number 12 the word that we keep using and you're like what does that mean prompting um prompting is great and it's kind of exactly what it sounds like it's a prompt um it is us using some sort of added assistance to help somebody achieve a task so um that can either, you know, be giving them a cue to respond to behavior. It could be um, us writing something down to let them know that they're supposed to respond. It could be us, you know, tapping their elbow to let them know they're supposed to raise their hand. There's multiple different types of prompts. You have um, visual, you have physical, you have transcription. Um, the list goes on. Um, and... We have gestural, we have modeling, all of that jazz. Um, so there is a prompting hierarchy, and I'm going to repeat it from top to bottom. And it starts off with visual. Um, and so that can be a picture um, to let a kiddo know what the behavior we want. We have verbal. Um, and we're also starting with the lowest amount of um, intrusiveness as well. Yes. So verbal. Um, and so that can be us vocally telling or transcription of writing down because transcription does fall into verbal communication. Um, and then we have gestural. So I can point to something. Um, I can tap on something. I can make a face, some, some sort of physical gesture that cues, hey, this is what's supposed to be happening. Modeling, just like it sounds, you walk down a runway and 
<laughs> you show the kiddo exactly what you want them to do. So you act it out first. So the kiddo is able to imitate. Then we have a partial physical, which means not completely physical. Um, it can move from a tap to maybe just a lift of an elbow um, or like a tap on a thumb if we're teaching how to, you know, do like a thumbs up skill, working on those fine motors. And then we have a full physical. We might have some kiddos who need some extra help. And so instead of just tapping the thumb to raise it, we might have to help them fully raise their thumb and start to, you know, build those muscles so they're able to work on those fine motor skills. Um, I think when it comes to prompting, an important thing to remember is that, well, I mean, when it comes to treatment and all, the important thing to remember is the client does have the right to the least intrusive um, treatment. And so making sure that we're really looking through uh, what that is. <laughs> um, and I mean, yeah. So prompt hierarchy, we have most to least and least to most. And so I think the only other thing to add really um, is when to use most to least and least to most. So most to least intrusive prompting, you're going to start with newly acquired targets most of the time. So targets that this child has not seen before, you're gonna start with a most intrusive to so they can get to reinforcement faster. And um, so they also know what is expected of them. And then for mastered skills or targets that this child is quite familiar with, we might start with least to most because we wanna give just a little tap in the right direction so that they can acquire reinforcement. So that's when you, when you would use each of those most of the time. But of course, always go to your BCBA and ask. Perfect. And that is prompting. And so next we have token systems. This is something that's kind of, you know, stacked within itself. Um, there's a lot of different type of token systems. And this is something that you'll learn as you continue to grow in your career. Um, you'll also hear a word called a token economy um, in the place of a token system, which are both the same thing. And it's essentially something that you set up and you teach the kiddo um, so they're able to gain access to reinforcement through a token. And then they can collect all those wonderful tokens and turn it into um, another reinforcer, which is going to be a backup reinforcer. Um, sometimes you might see this where you have, let's say, a token board and it has five little boxes and you have five little smiley faces. And every time a client engages in the target response or the behavior we're trying to see, we'll put a smiley face down. And then after those five smiley faces, since you collected all five, now you get to play with this super cool light up ball that your RBT brings every time they come for like five minutes. Yeah, and um, so I, I always think about money when I think about token systems because we're all kind of on a token system all the time that we're all very familiar with. And a token system, those reinforcers are called generalized conditioned reinforcers. And so what that means is at the beginning, that item that we're reinforcing the client with has no power. Um, if I get a dollar when I'm two years old, that probably doesn't mean much to me, right? Because a dollar, I have never bought anything. I don't go to the store. I don't have groceries, none of that. So the dollar means nothing to me. But as I get older and as I learn what that dollar means, then it has great value to me. So just like that with our kids in our sessions, they start out with a token that might not mean anything to them, but as they gain enough tokens to spend towards a reinforcer that they want to um, 
get, then it is going to have more meaning to them. And so um, that is kind of a, a basic overview of token systems. Perfect. And then the next one that we have on our list is going to be number 14. And just as it sounds, it's a crisis and an emergency. And this is going to be different procedures and protocols. Now, this is also something important to note. When it comes to different companies throughout different states, they do have different regulations and procedures of protocols. So it's important that you in, you know, inform yourself about your state laws and how certain protocols are supposed to go. But also, each company has a different policy. It is your job to get familiar with these procedures and protocols to make sure that you are in alignment with them. Now, for certain things, if your company happens to not have a procedure protocol, which I doubt they don't have one, <laughs> um, then, you know, you follow your gut. If it's a fire, you get out and you call 911, but you also call your BCBA <laughs> yes. and let them know and document, document, document. Um, so essentially, crisis and emergency is making sure that you know what to do when emergencies arise and making sure that you have a game plan and appropriate protocol that is in place to not only ensure your safety, the client's safety, and is within regulations of EACB, your company, and the state that you're in. Yeah, when I think of crisis emergency, what I always go through with my RBTs that I'm giving a competency assessment to is what is the hierarchy of people that you should contact? So here's the scenario. Let's say that you are riding the bike with a kiddo in their backyard and he falls down and breaks his leg. Who are you going to contact in what order? So of course you're gonna go get parents first, going to call 911 if necessary, call your BCBA, and if they don't answer, call their supervisor so that you can get immediate feedback about the situation. And then also most of the time you're gonna have an incident report to also do. Um, and this will be specific to each company, but this will just basically describe the events of, or the details of the event and who was involved and everything like that. So that's kind of the emergency protocol for most places in a broad scope. But like Sam said, please like make sure that your protocol um, for your company is in place and that you're aware of it. Perfect. And what we have next, we have antecedent interventions. Oh, wait, sorry, guys. It is what we have next, but this is section 15. Yes. <laughs> Chilly. Uh, so I love antecedent interventions. I think it's a, like one of the most underutilized um, procedures that we have. I'm getting giddy because I just <laughs> love it so much. I can talk about it all day, but I'll wrap it up in like a minute. Um, so for antecedent interventions, basically what we want to think of is when we're looking at that ABC contingency that we already have, we're looking at the A. So what can we do to the environment? How can we modify this child's situation to enhance our chances of getting the response that is desired okay so how do we affect before the behavior um occurs so we're looking at environmental changes that could be um priming the child so giving him some verbal feedback of what the consequences will be consequences will be in a situation um we have giving choices there's so many different antecedent strategies that we have and i highly recommend like getting two a week once you start in your career and just practicing two of them um, every single week so you can get really familiar with them. But antecedent interventions are going to decrease the likelihood that maladaptive behaviors are going to occur and we're gonna increase the likelihood that we're getting a desired response. This is also just gonna help the child in that environment um, 
by knowing that child, by individually individualizing their situation, thinking on your feet, being um, improving in the moment so that you can help this child get where they need to be. I always look at it like a ladder. Um, and so if we're missing certain rungs on the ladder and we're expecting this child to jump to the very top of the ladder, it's not going to happen, right? So sometimes we have to put some of those rungs in with anesthesia interventions so that we can help that child get to where they need to be. Perfect. Um, that is awesome. And so next we have a number 15. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, she summed it up. I mean, <laughs> that is what it is. Um, number 15, you have differential reinforcement. Okay, this is important because it's important that we are always using, again, least intrusive programs. And so differential reinforcement is something that we can use as another type of reinforcement prior to even trying to think about a punishment procedure. Um, and so it's giving a kiddo essentially an opportunity to engage in some other behavior so we can reinforce them for a behavior that is more appropriate than the one is engaged, that they're engaging with that can impair them or hurt them. Um, and so the three types that we're wanting you to look at during this time is going to be DRI, differential reinforcement of incompatible behavior, DRO, differential reinforcement of other behavior, and DRA, differential reinforcement of alternative behavior. Woo! So I thought we should clap for saying all that. Yeah. It's a lot. <laughs> so DRI, incompatible, that is a key word incompatible it does not work together it's like a two people in a relationship that are bad together they don't fit can't do it won't do it so incompatible let's talk about pinching pinching others to be exact if we have a kiddo who likes to pinch other people anytime that kiddo is next to someone they're going to be required to put their hands in their pocket can you pitch the person sitting next to you if your hands are in your pocket? No. Boom. It's <laughs> incompatible. It does not work. It can't happen at the same time. That is important to remember. If it can happen at the same time, therefore it is not incompatible. So when thinking about that, always remember two things don't work together. Like, I don't know two bad couples. Anywho, <laughs> DRO, differential reinforcement of other behaviors. This one is something that also gets confused with DRA. So when you hear the word other, you want to think of anything other when we think of other. So if we don't want a kiddo, I don't know, throwing darts at people, they can do absolutely anything other and be in, be reinforced than throwing darts. We wouldn't specify just a darts, we'd probably just do throwing, um, but anything other than throwing. So can you kick a ball? Yes. Can you high five a person? Yes. Can you play with Play-Doh? Yes. Can you throw? And wrong. I'm not gonna reinforce you for throwing only things other than throwing. I feel like you had something to say. No? Oh, no, solid. All right. We can high five though. Ooh. There we go. <laughs> You've been high five too. <laughs> so then we have DRA. Alternative is the key word. So alternative means it's something, you know, it's another option. So let's say a kid is saying, shut up, you dumb bitch. Ooh. And we're, you know, I've had... I've Honestly, I love, I love <laughs> the vocal yellers. Like, <laughs> like, oh my gosh. I've had so many I have say such that. a hard time not 
like just being like i get it like i i want to say that in my professional career sometimes i get it i feel that you know it's like hey you you can't say that to her and they're like well my teacher is a doo-doo head and i'm like no she might be though she might be but we can't we can't say that so instead of the kids saying shut up you dumb bitch to their teacher you can say hey can you be quiet please so giving them an alternative behavior to engage in that is more appropriate so but to specify a functionally equivalent alternative yes that is the important because if it doesn't serve the same function it's not likely that you're going to see that other behavior decrease um but i think dra also looks into social significance which you can hear us talking about at another time Plug it. Plug it. <laughs> but um, yeah, essentially that is what you need to know about differential reinforcement. And so on to the last thing um, on the list for 15 is the good old extinction. Da, da, da. <laughs> so for extinction, like it's like dinosaurs. It's extinct. It does not happen anymore. It's not there. So it's essentially, let's say, you know, this happens a lot with siblings. For instance, this used to happen a lot with me and my sister. Um, I would say something dumb, like, I'm going to stab your eye out. And my wow, sister, Sam. okay, yeah, wow. <laughs> that, that's a dark turn. <laughs> and my sister would laugh. And I was like, oh, shit, this is funny. I'm going to keep doing it. And my mom would get pissed off. She's like, this is not appropriate. Don't say this in church. And I'm like, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and here I am. I keep saying it over and over because guess what? My sister keeps laughing. Well, one day my sister said, you know what? You sucker. I'm going to put you on extinction. And every time I said that word, she no longer laughed. Mm. And I said, well, hold on. She don't think this is funny anymore. And so I stopped engaging in that behavior. So extinction is a behavior that was previously reinforced that is no longer accessing reinforcement. And so my sister stopped laughing. I stopped saying that stuff in church and uh, my mom started smiling. (laughs) That's a beautiful wrap up. Um, The only thing I would add to understanding extinction is extinction should never be used independently. It should always be used with a functional alternative. Extinction um, is a part of um, differential reinforcement because when you're reinforcing one behavior, you're stopping reinforcing another in some occasions. So um, extinction, just know that you're not, you should not be using extinction alone. You should be giving that child another outlet to do, um, to function as whatever that maladaptive behavior is. Perfect. If there's a decrease, there should be an increase and something different all right guys that's going to be the wrap up for um skills acquisition and behavior Behavior reduction reduction. (laughs) part two sections 11 through 15 and goodbye goodbye Sam. <laughs> What's up, everybody? <laughs> I'm Shelby. And this is the Ripple Effect ABA. And today we're going over the second section um, for the RBT competency assessment. You got it that time. Hell <laughs> I <yeah>. did. <laughs> assessment task four and five. Uh, four being preference assessment. Oof, I love this one. And five being ABC data. <laughs> <laughs> so, preference assessment. 
I feel like this section is the most underutilized thing ever. Oh, for sure. And when I sit there and I tell people, I'm like, explain to me a preface test. And they're like, what? <laughs> and I'm like, bro, this is how you like win it life in session. Yeah. This is gold. My question for this section is always, well, one of my questions um, is always, when should we conduct preference assessments? And I get a variety of answers, such as once a month or once a week or once a session. The correct answer is um, all the time. Uh, anytime that you see your kid lacking motivation or if you're using that same damn reinforcer over and <laughs> over and over and you're like, Ugh, this kid is not attending today or we're not getting through with the same fluency that we got through, you know, a day before, two days before, do a preference assessment. These can be informal. Yes, we can do a formalized assessment like multiple stimulus with replacement, multiple stimulus without replacement, but you can also do informal assessments like a free operant assessment all the time. Just see where the kiddo goes in the room and see what they want to pick out. That's a free operant. Um, a forced choice is a great choice to use. Getting mm -hmm, two mm -hmm. um, of this child's favorite things and putting them together and saying, which one do you want? Or without a verbalization, you can just put them up and see which one the child goes to. Um, and so with preference assessments, just knowing that we should be running them probably a lot more frequently than we are. <laughs> Absolutely. And I mean, like the reason I say it's gold is I, I can do like two, three, four in a session. Yeah. And honestly, like, at that time, I'm giving the kid the choice and they're at their all high. They're like, this lady is about to give me everything I want. Yeah. And I get to pick. I'm like, hey, dude, we doing this one or this one. Okay, cool. Which one do you want? That one. All right, go go into the room. Figure out something that you like. It should be happening all the time. Yeah. And it's just that extra reinforcement. It's like, man, not only do I get to advocate and have a choice, I get to interact with what I just, you know, advocated for. And I just think it's a great way to, you know, start off in session. And it's a great way to make sure that we're not engaging in bribery. And it's, it's helpful all the way around. And it's a simple thing that we can, it's a simple technique that we use that we can teach novel people and then be successful at yeah. for behavior change. And so I think that's important. So, um, the preference assessments to, you know, look out for are going to be free operant, uh, forced choice, uh, single stimulus, um, paired stimulus, multiple stimulus with replacement, and multiple stimulus without replacement. Um, Shelby definitely has already defined a few. Um, it's still just a like quick review of each, um, and then you know the more formal ones will kind of break down because I know that I at the beginning was like, huh, what? Like, the hell? what are we doing here? <laughs> what are you asking of me? <laughs> yeah. um, so like free operant. You know, being free as a bird, just kind of going out and figuring out what you like. It's like going into, imagine, free operate essentially is like, you're going into a mall where everything's free and you walk in and boom, you can pick whatever you want and whatever you go up to, boom, that's your choice. Yep. That is free operant. Um, what was the other one? Forced choice. Everybody has gone through this with every parent, every parent that I have ever encountered in my life does it um and it's like hey bud do you want um apple juice or grape juice boom there you go yep that's it we're just figuring out out of two choices which one is your most preferred um we have single stimulus and so it's kind of how it sounds um there's one stimuli so we could have let's say um we could have 
Frozen, um, I was gonna say Frozen Moana. That is not it. Frozen Moana. Elsa Moana. You heard it here first, guys. <laughs> Frozen Moana will be hitting your theaters <laughs> January 2023. That would be legit. I mean, terrifying that Hawaii would freeze, but you know. So single stimulus, you know, you have Moana, you have Elsa, you have Pocahontas. They're all single stimulus, but here's the thing. Whoop, park it. You're only gonna present one of them at a time. So here, go play with Pocahontas. Let's calculate this time. I'm gonna take that back. Whoop, go play with um, another princess. I'm forgetting their names. <laughs> and you know, you go through that because the whole goal is we're building hierarchies here. When we're building that hierarchy, we can figure out which one is the most preferred, which one is, you know, if Elsa happens to lose an arm and we can't play with her because mom's fixing it, Perfect. I've already did a preference assessment. I know if Elsa's not available, Moana is the second best choice and I can go from there. And with that, we're really just looking at the duration that the child is playing with each of those stimuli. Um, and so it's called single stimulus because we're only looking at one stimuli at a time and for the entire duration. So you should be writing down during this preference assessment what the duration for each amount of play is for each item. Absolutely, um, which also means you might need to sanitize that environment just a little bit because, you know, if they still do have access to those other things, it might make it pretty difficult to do so. Um, and then paired stimulus kind of sounds like, you know, what it is. It's like a pair of socks. It's two things. Um, so now we have, I don't know, Olaf and Elsa. Perfect. I choose Olaf. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone will choose Olaf. <laughs> You know, we have, you know, I'll think of all of the Disney princesses and their characters because all of them have them, weird enough, and I'm just now realizing that. Um, and we give them and that Disney character to them at the same time. I guess they're both Disney characters. I'm getting off topic. Um, you give Elsa and Olaf paired at the same time. There is other sets of pairs, but now I want to calculate, hey, how long are you spending with these, these two items? But out of the two, which one are you playing with more? Is it Olaf? Is it Elsa? You know, maybe I play with Elsa for five minutes and I play with Olaf for 15. You know, though Elsa is also preferred, Olaf is more preferred than Elsa. Amen. It's just the truth for all of us. <laughs> um, and then we have, um, I feel like I'm, no, I did skip one. Okay, then we have multiple stimulus with replacement what is that sam Woo, it sounds like a mouthful <laughs> it um, is. but it's mul it's multiple different things so you have um you have a car you have a barbie you have a ball you have play-doh you have um a kite multiple different stimulus right we're gonna lay those out all right kiddo you can pick one i'm gonna pick the ball cool now you get to play with that ball how long are you gonna play with it before it's like meh I don't want this anymore. I am now going to take the ball back, change up that order and put it back in the lineup to see, are you gonna choose that ball again? Because we're replacing it. It does need to be something that is put back. And so it's just multiple stimulus with a replacement. And that's how we're building that hierarchy. Yeah, does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Okay, solid. <laughs> and then we have multiple stimulus without replacement. You want to explain that one? Yeah, so it's basically the same procedure that Sam just already laid out. So let's get to the point where the child picks the ball. All of the items are already laid out. 
So without replacement, after that ball is chosen, after you take that ball back, that's gonna go behind your back or in your bag or anything like that. And so then what the child has to choose from is only the predetermined items. So the car, the um, slinky, the slime, all of those things that were already out there, that's what the child has to choose from. And then you just redo that process until there's only one item. So the child has options. If you start with a, a field of six or an array of six items, then after that six item is chose, you're gonna take that back, put it away. Then the child has five. Then the child's gonna choose out of that five. Then you're gonna take that fifth item back, put it back in the bag, and then the child has four. So it's just gonna go down until um, the child chooses each of them or decides to stop choosing. Absolutely, and I think the, um when it comes to the more formal ones, you can definitely run those, but probably when you have your BCBA present, yeah. because it, it's gonna take up some more time and you're gonna need to sanitize that environment. But awesome one you can use during session could just be that free offering for choice. It's quicker, straight to the point, um, and it's gonna get you the same thing that you're looking for with the other ones, um, just in a smaller hierarchy. And but the last thing that I would say about preference assessments is also just understanding your learner, right? Mm -hmm. Because sometimes we get a kiddo and they're like, Peppa the pig is the man. And maybe I will uh, use Peppa the pig for my reinforcement for two weeks because that kid is obsessed with Peppa the pig. And so sometimes you can have reinforcers that last for a very long time. But sometimes we get kiddos that have fleeting motivations. And so that's going to mean that maybe every five minutes this child is like, I'm done, I'm satiated, I want something else. I'm done, I'm satiated, I want something else. So that's why it's really good to do those more formal preference assessments sometimes because then you have a whole, you know, you have six, eight, 10 items that you know that child is reinforced by that you can pull out of your bag and use for reinforcers. Perfect. And that is uh, the conclusion of number four. Now on to number five in the assessment section, which is gonna be ABC data. Um, what does the ABC stand for? I always like to review that. The A, the B, and the C is a contingency, and it's going to be our antecedent behavior and consequence. The simplest way we can put that is antecedent occurs right before the behavior. It's gonna be that descriptive stimulus that cues a behavior to happen behavior it's going to be um a response you know um something where we're either moving something or ourselves that alters the environment um and then that c is that consequence it's going to directly follow the behavior and it's either going to increase or decrease that behavior in the future um, and that is that abc now the data portion of that is to make sure that we're able to see something occurring in the environment and be able to pick out the A, the B, and the C to collect, to kind of let your BCBA know. So whenever we're looking at ABCs too, um, I think most of the time we look at ABCs is like, whenever we're looking at maladaptive behaviors. Mm -hmm. So what happened before the behavior, mom told the child that they have to get off the iPad. The behavior, maybe they have a meltdown because of that. And then C, mom gives back the iPad and that's going to reinforce the behavior and increase the likelihood that the next time she tries to get that iPad away from the child, the child's going to engage in meltdown. Um, but also on the other side of that, ABC is literally everything and anything. So it's also if I say tap the table, that is the A, the child taps the table, that's the B, and then I give the child a high five, that's the C. Um, so it can also be for skill acquisition goals along with um, tracking ABC behavior um, for maladaptive behaviors. Something I always ask my RBTs whenever I'm doing a preference assessment is, what does the ABC data tell us? And a lot of the time, especially if it's a brand new RBT, they're kind of stumped, they're like, mm, 
I know what ABC is, but I'm not necessarily sure what it tells us. So it's going to tell us what the hypothesized function of the behavior is or what is maintaining that behavior. So once you have um, enough data of ABC um, data for a maladaptive behavior, you're able to see, okay, well, you know, 80% of the time mom gives the iPad back. So maybe that behavior is maintained uh, by mom giving it back or that tangible um, function of behavior. That is perfect. I mean, that's magic. And honestly, collect ABC data night and day. I cannot tell you enough, you know, when your BCDAs are looking at data and we go in and it's like, whoa, the graph is, you know, dipping and, you know, we can see the score, but it's also like, okay, well, what caused it to dip? If we have that ABC data where it is written out, we're going to be able to better support you and the client um, for success. And so, you know, sometimes it can be a hassle, but always make sure you're doing it because it is really important for the success of treatment. And if like no BCBA is ever going to be mad that you collected ABC data in your notebook. I Not And if all. they are, you just call our hotline. We don't have one, but <laughs> you just send us a DM or something um, and we will talk you through that. But it is great whenever you go in um, and see that ABC data laid out. Some online data collection systems will have ABC um, like a button that you can press and it'll put it into a nice little graph for you. But I would always just recommend um, doing it on paper data as well if you don't have that online data collection system. Well, that, there you have it, people. <laughs> um, that was the conclusion of the assessment section, task four and five for the RBT competency assessment. <laughs> All right, goodbye. <laughs>listening to the ripple effect ABA. <laughs> Alrighty guys, today we're going to be focusing on professionalism and the requirements um, for the BACB for the um, RBT competency assessment and this is going to be the task from 16 to 20 um, which includes session notes, client dignity, professional boundaries, supervision requirements, and clinical direction. Alright, so number 16 session notes oh guys this is so (laughs) important honestly i'm one of those people who dreads notes i generally do same but this is the thing that i always have to tell myself when it comes to session notes is that this is how the client is going to continue to be able to get services me not putting in these notes can affect their ability to receive services in the future and when i think about that if i don't put in a note that is my due diligence right there. I am impeding them from being able to succeed in the future. That is just how I continue to think about it myself. Anytime I'm like, I don't want to do a session note. But um, important thing to know about session notes, there's different ways to do it on different systems. Um, Each insurance company and company does have a different way they would like you to do session session notes. Whoa, tongue twister. to make sure that you're in regulations within the insurance company so they're able to accept those hours that you did do. Um, with that being said, each session note you get, whether whatever company it is, make sure that you're being objective, you're being clear, you're writing what is true, um, and that you're filling out everything your company is asking you to fill out. You know, 
NAs, none, short answers are not appropriate. <laughs> Insurance will kick in back. The company will have to pay millions of dollars back for that. And it can affect the client services uh, because insurance companies do review that at the end of the year and those go against the hours that they technically received. And for, so for insurance companies, they audit, they can audit however often they want to audit your company. And so they review RBT session notes and they have the ability to recoup up to 50% of services uh, from that RBT, or at least some insurance companies do, um, from that RBT if they feel like session notes are not sufficient or if they are invalid or there are discrepancies in the data and from what you wrote. So not trying to scare you, but it is very important to be objective and put what you need to put in that session note. Um, also, when looking at session notes for RBTs, RBTs, they're looking at changes from day to day. So insurance companies are looking at how did it go from yesterday to today? And look for BCBAs, they're looking at like more broad changes from week to week, month to month, those types of things. Yeah, I think that's a really important thing to know is that, you know, it can affect your company. Um, and I mean, if it affects your company, it can affect you and your job status, but ultimately it really can affect the client. Um, so just be honest and true, get those things done. Um, and then again, the BACB has the ability to look at you at any time they want. And so to make sure that you are in coherence with your certification, it's important that you are making sure you're doing those session notes, guys. You want to do a little example, Sam? Yeah, I mean. Okay, awesome. Oh, okay. okay so I'm going to give you. Oh, man. Here, guys. <laughs> it's getting <spotsy>. <laughs> <laughs> um, Okay, so I'm gonna give you a sentence or two of subjectivity oh, and gosh. a session note that we do not want to submit to insurance. Okay. And then I want you to give me the objective version back while she is like sitting up straight. <laughs> she just corrected her little card game. Like, she's yeah, ready to go. Um, okay, so today I walked in and this kid was acting crazy he was all over the place he kicked me and had a couple of meltdowns when um mom told him no and but overall we had a good session absolutely not guys don't um, put that in there let me let me stress it don't put it in there <laughs> no 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 um so again Minds may not be perfect because, you know, it is a um, imaginary situation. But first off, I will say upon arrival of session, um, the client's um, behavior seemed to be on a maladaptive incline. They showed um, signs of frustration or being upset through throwing items, kicking people, yelling, screaming, and tantruming. Um, mom reported that prior to the RBT showing up that um, the client requested an item and was denied access to that item. Um, after a certain amount of time, the client was able to start session without maladaptive behaviors, engaging in said activities. Um, and then you could summarize it, you can say overall, um, the client was able to complete these tasks, whatever those tasks were. Um, and we were able to decrease maladaptive behaviors by the end of session. Maladaptive behaviors did impair us to being able to um, complete the first 25% of session um, and then kind of a summary of that. But you do want to explain everything that happened and what was conducted at that time. The only feedback that I would give oh, son of a biscuit. would be... <laughs> so instead of just saying hit, kick, through items, um, 
threw two items across the room, yes. kicked me three times, had a meltdown for approximately four and a half. Yes, so specify. just be very specific about what occurred. You can take a lot of this information directly from your data that you collected for session. Guys, I have Great a Great job, Sam. I have a lot of anxiety and you know, when people put me on the spot, things fall through. So please don't judge me. I promise you, I'm a really great BCA. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why you're still nervous when I ask you questions. I probably asked you 700,000 questions at this point. I mean, I look at you and I'm like, wow, you know, that is what I want to be in life. <laughs> I I'm so serious. And I tell people all the time, I'm like, Shelby's why I'm here. This is why I do what I do. You were the beginning of it. Shut and up. so like, you know, I get the nerves. I, I just, <laughs> I get the nerves. Sam is absolutely wonderful. One of the best RBTs I've ever had. I had minimal feedback to give her on every spot check. It was very frustrating for me because I'm a real feedback queen. <laughs> so it's like, damn it, let me find something. I did, I will say, I did get 100 on a uh, BCBA spot check. But you want to know who gave it to me? I, I can't say her, I don't know if I can say her name. You can use the initial? But it starts with a C. Okay. Wow. I I like that. I, w I got to a point where I refused to give <laughs> Sam a hundred. <laughs> I was like, I will find something that you can work on. But that was just my own little yes. thing. Because I was like, Sam, I can't give you a hundred every time. I have to. I'm going to nitpick. I'm going to nitpick you to the core. But that is something I'll remember for the rest of my life because the BCBA that I'm talking about is actually extremely thorough and like oh she's the best. Her stuff is impeccable. Oh she's the best. And so the fact that somebody looked at me and was like this is this is to oh, my standard. That's like you just gotta. <laughs> it was amazing. Yeah, but it was like getting a Grammy from this woman. She is yeah. an incredible BCBA. So. Toot my horn. Toot toot. Okay, client dignity. Yo, this is important. This is extremely important, and this is something that we need to constantly have on our mind, twenty four seven, all hours and days of the week. When you yes. are with a client, and when you are without a client, a uh, client dignity. Oh, amen. You better preach about <laughs> it. I'm yes, telling you, ma'am. You know, it's protecting the dignity of a client, but also respecting them in the presence of a client. Oh my gosh, here I am. I'm like a preacher, guys. <laughs> I like, I think it's hard, so, so important. You know, I, you know, my mom, my family works in healthcare and law enforcement and all that other stuff. And so client dignity is something I've been taught my whole entire life. Um, but when it comes to client dignity, there are multiple ways and places that you can use this. This also is going to fall into HIPAA. You know, making sure when you're in certain places, you're not talking about the client's diagnosis, their name, um, you know, when you're communicating with a parent when the client is not present, making sure that you're communicating appropriately with the parent and not saying, you know, your child was bad and mean and they did this and it's like, that's not cool. That's not respect. It's also not objective. It's not, a yes, that's not objective. And when we speak, we have to be objective about the clients that we serve. Um, easy ways for, for client dignity, giving your child choices of where what room you're going to be in for certain tasks, giving mm -hmm. them choices of uh, reinforcers of different tasks. Hey, do you want to do this one or do you want to do that one? Um, giving them a lot of choices, talking to them at an age appropriate level. Yes. That is something that the kiddos in our community have to deal with a lot of shit with. And uh, we don't want to be a part of that negative experience for them. So if you have a 14 year old client who is severely impacted, you're still not going to go in and talk to them um like a two or three four-year-old and a lot of people do this and so make sure you're talking to that client at an age appropriate level about um you know 
what reinforcers they actually like and not what we're just perceiving them to enjoy. Um, can think of any other? Yeah, I mean, a lot of kiddos like nicknames, but making sure we're giving appropriate nicknames. And when a kiddo asks us, hey, to stop that, or no, I don't want to, making sure yeah. if it's not a safety issue, then we're, you know, we're seizing that. We're making sure that we're respecting that. But ultimately, making sure we're respecting their autonomy at all times. They are people, mm-hmm. they are, everybody has a right to advocate for themselves and mm. should be respected at all times. Um, client autonomy also includes, you know, if, you know, I've had this happen a lot where little boys will run out butt naked and they're like, ah, I'm naked. Okay. I'm going to turn my back because actually that's your personal body in your private space. Yeah. And I shouldn't be witness to that. You know, if you have an older kiddo who needs help in the restroom and you want to watch for hand washing, um, waiting until they're done. And then, you know, maybe not standing in the restroom, but standing at the door to Give them that respect in that space, I think is going to be extremely important when it comes to client dignity. Yes, client dignity is um, one of my passions and I just really wanna like phone home here that that should be at the forefront of your mind throughout session. Mm-hmm. How your designing session, structuring session, client dignity should be at the forefront of every kind of thought that you have um, going forward whenever you're doing that. Yes, and then um, for number 18 on our task list, we have professional boundaries. Woo! Is this a topic we can talk about all day long? And absolutely, you will find um, us talking about professional boundaries on one of our other episodes that have to go over um, social comments and different things. (laughs) (laughs) And so you'll hear more about that on another episode, but for now, we're gonna keep it short. (laughs) But, it's kind of what it sounds like knowing where the line is and how to keep it professional at all times mm-hmm. we are working with children we are working with you know families we are working with people who have disabilities it is important to know and keep it professional at all times this can jeopardize um the client services and your job itself and so um there's many different ways we can make sure that we're ensuring those professional boundaries where it's like, you know, sometimes we have an awesome day at work and it's like, mm, I'm gonna go home and I'm gonna tell my husband all about this. Hey, you know, that might be cool for other jobs, but you know, with being in this field, there is that boundary where it's like, okay, well maybe I can't communicate with that. But professional boundaries- Or only share certain aspects of that, but we can't, give anything that would be identifying to the client. Absolutely, but it goes further than outside of your work, it's also inside your work. Mm -hmm. And so professional boundaries, guys, I mean, the job you will do in this field is going to be absolutely amazing. You're gonna affect so many lives. And with within changing lives for the better um, or increasing quality of life, a lot of people, you know, they really, they want to show you that they're appreciative and that they're happy that you're there and so they start to offer you things they start to ask you to go places you know they want to get closer to you because you're such a prominent person in their life now though you're there probably seven hours monday through friday (laughs) and you're a part of this family we still have to be a professional which means hey i'm not going to chili's with you um after session at night. I'm not doing that. I'm not calling you on the weekend to tell you about 
my boyfriend. I'm not calling you on Monday when session's not scheduled to tell you I have a flat tire and this guy just drove off and didn't want to help me. You know, that's not any of, that's just not professional. Yeah, and with professional boundaries, um, really what Sam's talking about is a dual relationship. So we have to avoid any activities that lead us to a dual relationship. Um, and some things you're gonna think are gonna be harmless, but they aren't. And the reason why we wanna avoid dual relationships is gonna be because then if you're giving something to the family or they're giving something to you outside of the professional environment that you're in, that could lead them to feel like they owe you, that could change the dynamic of your relationship, um, there could be other feelings. There's just a lot that can happen there and we really wanna make sure that in session we're focusing on the progress of the client. At the end of the day, that is why there should be professional boundaries up. That means no babysitting. Even if they're offering real good money, 30 bucks an hour for mm -hmm. my kid, mm -hmm. talk to your supervisor on a way to appropriately decline that offer. Um, this can also be adding parents on social media. Do not do that. <laughs> um, um, this could be if they sell Cincy and you sell Mary Kay and y'all just, but she really wants this foundation, you can't sell anything to her. She cannot sell anything to you. She cannot give you a gift over $10. Um, so there's a lot of these very specific things that you cannot do. And I would just highly recommend with professional boundaries, um, especially being an in-home provider, because in clinic, you do have a separation. In-home, you have very minimal separation. You are in that family's home. You are with that parent 15, 20 hours a week. So with that, just making sure that you're talking to your supervisors. If anything comes up that you're like, I don't know if I handled that appropriately, talk to them about it because they can guide you through where you should go. Um, if you don't know, always kind of self-report yourself to your supervisor because it's highly unlikely they're gonna get mad or there's gonna be any repercussions because the BACB actually wants you to self-report just because then we can correct that behavior and make sure it doesn't happen in the future. So always feel free to go to your supervisor. Um, Bailey also has a hotline for ethical consideration. So there's a lot of ways. You can also go on Facebook and there's a ton of RBT groups, BCBA groups, and we can all give you feedback on those situations so that you can avoid a later like downfall of you and the family if professional boundaries do get crossed. And this is again, all just to make sure that the client is protected and the sessions are about session. One thing I like to say too, because I think a lot of times when people think about professional boundaries, they commonly think about the parents. Mm -hmm. But I've seen some occasions where professional boundaries can be crossed with older clients. You know, some of all of us don't work with children. Um, sometimes it can be, you know, maybe you're starting to feel, you know, certain ways towards a client, or there can be times where, you know, I had a client that, you know, who really trusted me and was like, I'm gonna, you know, tell you a secret. I got in trouble at school. Perfect, thank you for letting me know that. I have to go communicate that with mom because it's important for mom to know that you got in trouble at school today, bud. And we can go through those different yeah. things because we never want to, you know, disguise those things or hide those things from parents or, um, you know, interrelationships with clients or any of those things. And so always, you know, check yourself before you walk into session and make sure, hey, are these boxes checked? And do I have a clear mind? Am I thinking about the client's autonomy? And do I remember my professional boundaries? What am I here for? And if you continue to do that, I think that you'll do pretty great during session. So what I'm hearing is that you're saying you should check yourself before you wreck yourself. Is that correct? That part. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Next to topic 19, supervision requirements. Wow, I really went on about that. I know, right? <laughs> 
depending on when you're listening to this, supervision requirements can be different as they do change in the BACB. Insurers. Good point, yeah. Sam. You know, they and they make sure that they're updating things and that we are changing with the world. They want to want us to make sure that we're up to speed. And so it can change. Um, and it, no matter what people tell you and what you hear, it is important for yourself that you go and you read it yourself at all times because mm. it is your responsibility through the BACB that you inform yourself about your own regulations. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Say it again, damn. Yes, ma'am. I'm letting y'all know. I'm telling you. I, I'm, I live and breathe the BACB and FS code. Let me tell you. Also, the website is super helpful. This is not an important point compared to like on this specific topic, but go check the website. There's a ton of ethical considerations on there, ethical examples, a ton of pamphlets, guides, everything on there for you. Um, but the supervision requirement from the BACB, so the amount of time or the percentage of hours that your BCBA has to see you in session and be one-on-one -on -one with you is 5%. Most of the time you're gonna get more um, supervision than that. And if you're not getting more supervision than 5% and you're a new RBT or you're really needing that extra support, I would highly recommend that you reach out to your leadership team um, to discuss that because we really should be giving more supervision than just the 5%. But what you need to know for the competency exam is that it is 5%. Also, whose responsibility is it to make sure that you're getting 5% of the monthly hours that you are doing? Mm. Mm. Answer is yourself. There are some companies that will track it for you, but the BACB does say that the RBT is responsible to ensure that they are receiving that 5%. So if you check that month and you've only got three, it is your job to reach out to your BCBA and let them know that you need to be supervised to gain that 5% because that can put your certification in jeopardy. So that's an important thing to remember. Um, and then here we are at number 20, the last one, and you have reviewed the whole list. Isn't that great? Um, clinical direction. Mm -hmm. Essentially, it's important no matter what. This will never not be a thing. Even for BCBAs, we seek clinical direction as well. Clinical directors do. Every, everybody should be seeking direction from, from others. Anytime sure. you have that ounce of I don't know and you're questioning it, follow up with someone and then again backtrack i mean there's some things i know confidently and i'm like i know i've memorized this but i'm gonna go check again check again you can never be extra safe you you just can't um always making sure but though since you are at the entry level and you are an rbt is it important that there are certain things and matters that have to be dealt with by your bcba there are certain things that are not within your scope that you can discuss or talk about or have the clearance to be able to do so it's important when it comes to emergency situations questions about programming um questions about vacations and all of those things that need to be referred directly to your bcba it is important that you do not answer those questions and you say unfortunately i'm incapable of speaking about that or that is out of my scope i will get in contact with my bcba and they will let you know you can use that verbatim like <laughs> copy and paste and with cl clinical direction all i would say is i have been in a situation with certain bcbas that i did not feel comfortable seeking that right mm -hmm. or i felt like i was getting punished or reprimanded for asking too many questions if you're in that position please reach out to your leadership to your clinical director and not to tell on anybody or anybody in trouble but to say i don't know how to have this conversation i feel like i've advocated for myself that i 
um, you know, needed a different way to gain feedback or that um, I felt like I was being punished for asking too many questions. So just reach out to your leadership about that. But for the competency assessment, you really need to know anytime that you are 90, I'm going to say it again, I said it before, if you're 95% sure about something, be 100% sure. So just make sure that you're asking over communication is highly preferred over under communication. So just make sure that you have that full transparency with your um, supervisor. And there you go. You have your task 16 through 20 for the RBT competency exam for professionalism and requirements. And that is the completion of your exam. Now you go and you pass. Congratulations. Yay. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>